Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Paddock in the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. Hello everyone, it's a pleasure to be joined by Ryan Campbell, the new head coach of Durham County Cricket Club, who as you will find out has had an eventful year. Hello Ryan. Hey mate, good to have you. Good to be here. Thanks for asking me. No problem. Well, you should be good at this. You've done breakfast radios. <laughs> Yeah, I, I reckon when I look back, you can't say that I was never boring because, uh, yeah, I did plenty of things uh, throughout my life and career so far. So, um, yeah, I re- to be honest, I really enjoyed the media. I, I It was probably one of the reasons I retired so young was, um, you know, in Perth, I was pretty busy. I was, you know, I was asked to do radio all the time and I was working on a, a, a TV travel show called Postcards WA, which was one of the probably the greatest thing I've ever done in my life which was awesome and yeah so retiring was easy for me it was sort of uh, I was too busy to play cricket. Well there's lots to talk about you've had as I said quite an eventful year you've had a T20 World Cup success with with Holland you've now got an exciting new job at Durham and presumably you're going to have a a house move as well but uh, you very nearly died in April you must be pleased to be alive at the moment. (laughs) <laughs> Mate, it's fantastic to still be here. Yeah, it's been a, a an eventful year, that's for sure. But um, look, I, I look back and you know, obviously, very grateful, very uh, happy to still be to pushing pushing uh, things around, and um, really looking forward to my next challenge up in Durham. Um, you know, it, it's a wonderful county, and my wife and my family we've just spent six days up there, just looking around the place, and uh, yeah, ready to go. Yeah, talking of Durham, when do you officially start your new job as head coach? Well, it's, well, officially it's the 1st of January, but um, yeah, I'm booked and my flights are all ready to go. So I'll, I'll arrive on the 2nd of January. Um, the players will come back from their, I guess, Christmas hiatus, um, do some fitness, and then we'll get stuck in probably around the 9th or 10th of uh, January. And why are you looking for a new challenge after six years with with the Netherlands? 100%. You know, I, I knew my goal, to be honest, was always to take this that group to an Australian World Cup. Um, and as it turned out, it's probably a year or so later than what I had planned because, you know, the Australian World Cup was supposed to be, you know, when COVID hit, was supposed to be 2020, I think. But um, look, I, I just knew that, my time was coming to an end and 
Um, you know, not to say that I didn't still love it. Of course, you know, I, lo- I love that group and, and always will be. They'll, they'll be very close to my heart. But um, I just felt the timing was right, that they ne- probably needed a, a new voice and I needed a new challenge um, because I, I'd been in the associate world now for probably, what, 10 and a half years with Hong Kong and, and with the Netherlands. And, look, I, I, I adore what people do in the associate world, the sacrifices they make, the, the way the players and the coaching staff and everyone puts in without getting a lot of financial rewards back. And, um, you know, I think I've flown the flag for all associates pretty well over, over my time. But the chance to go back into Australian cricket or English cricket was always the goal. And, you know, I, I just thought the time was, was bang on. And director of cricket at Durham is Marcus North. Do you know Marcus quite well? Uh, yes, we um, we even played club cricket together. When he was coming through the ranks, he uh, you know he joined Bayswater Morley from Wanneroo, and where I spent most of my time. And um, you know, obviously, I watched him develop into a wonderful player and person, which is really important. And you know, at the end of the day, when you know, my decision to go to Durham when I sat down with my wife and looked at the pros and cons and did all my due diligence and stuff. One of the factors that kept resonating back to me was my relationship with Marcus. And, you know, we'd been through a lot together with WA and uh, I felt that, you know, we, when it comes to vision for where he wants to take Durham, you know, we were very much aligned. And, um, you know, that is a, a massive factor and you know i'm looking forward to having a, a really productive working relationship with him and um you know taking hopefully durham to where we we think we can get them yeah that's a good point because durham had a very disappointing season last year coming six in the county championship they were bottom in their uh, royal london 50 over group and eighth of nine in their blast group so what's your aim for the 2023 season Oh, look, it's pretty easy to, you know, throw out big things and say we're going to try and win trophies and get promotion and stuff. But my number one goal is to make sure we play in the right manner. I think, you know, I was growing up in a wonderful period of Australian cricket as well as being taught at the academy by, you know, one of my wonderful mentors in Rod Marsh, who unfortunately is not with us anymore. But, you know, Rod always taught us that, we as cricketers were entertainers and especially us as batsmen, our job was to score and to score fast enough to make sure that our bowling staff had time in a four-day fixture to take 20 wickets to win games of cricket. So, you know, the, the facts are, and, and I, I reckon the, um, you know, the interviews I've done so far and, and the boys, when I, I do start working with them, will probably get sick of hearing it, but I hate draws. And I'm not just jumping on the back of, obviously, the England uh, juggernaut that's going on at the moment. But, you know, that's how we were taught to play. You know, I'm going to risk all to win a game of cricket because I don't care if I lose. I honestly don't care. As long as we play it right and as long as we're looking to win, then if you lose, that that happens. But, you know, that that's the mindset that I want my team to have. And basically the question they need to ask themselves at any point of the match, very simple. How can we win this game of cricket? And if every single one of them are saying that at the same time, then, mate, my job is done. I, I don't have to come in and suggest declarations and this, that and the other because I think that will naturally come. But we need to get to that point. And to do it, 
We need to have really good basic games. We need to trust our batters. We need to trust our bowling staff. You know, we have to do the hard work because, you know, when you reeled off those numbers about last year, mate, we haven't earned the right to talk about winning stuff. What we've earned the right is to work harder than anyone else. And that's what we're going to do. I know that the lads work hard and, you know, the Northeast is renowned for its working class um, stigma, so to speak. But, um, yeah, I, I just can't wait to get stuck in and hopefully get this group to where they really need to be. Well, you've got some exciting players to work with, with Matthew Potts, Alex Lees, and occasionally, uh, hopefully, the man who doesn't like draws, uh, Ben Stokes as well. Yeah, well, look, again, the, the opportunity to work with those sort of guys and, and you know, Bryden Cast is another one that's been thrown around there for, for English cricket. So um, throw into the mix the fact that we have four players in the England under-19 squad which I don't think that's happened too often uh, in the past for any county. So, you know, I'm watching footage of those young kids and think, gee, <laughs> I love youngsters. And I think if anyone has had a look at what I've done here in the Netherlands, they know that I love youngsters and blooding them and giving them opportunities. And as long as they're surrounded by good senior heads and calm heads around them that can teach them the way, and, of course, they have to earn their, their spot. I'm not just going to hand it out uh, easily, but with that great blend of experience and youth, I think it's a really exciting time. Look, I honestly, I'll be surprised if I see Ben Stokes two days out of the whole year, to be honest, but um, just picking his brain over a, over a coffee or over a beer, you know, talking about the way he likes to play the game is obviously really important because from everything that I've been told, and again, I have not met Ben Stokes yet, um, he loves Durham County Cricket Club and he wants success for Durham. So, of course, his opinion on how things are going um, is going to be really important for us going forward. Well, it looks like members can be looking forward to an exciting uh, season at the Riverside. Uh, what about you for playing in, in, in England? I know you played a bit in the Lancashire League, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. So I, I spent three, three years playing in, in the Lancashire League. To be honest, I was also supposed to play county cricket a couple of times, but I, I got injured uh, during the season in uh, in Australia and, you know, needed some, some surgery because, uh, you know, bat, opening the batting and wicket-keeping, uh, it, it brought its uh, issues on the old body sometimes. But, um, look, the, the end of the day, it's – I think I've watched the county game because, mate – I know Australia and England have this wonderful rivalry. And from the day we are pretty much born in the backyard playing our first game of, um, you know, backyard cricket with the family, it's England versus Australia. And it's this rivalry that's just built. You know, Rod Marsh speaks about, you know, how to beat England. Um, you know, as an academy side, we, I was involved in two matches that we beat England as the, you know, the academy side, which didn't go too, too well with the English at the time. But, you know, we have all that, which meant you also have to have an appreciation of the county game, which helps build England cricket. And I've always thought that the county cricket and the Sheffield Shield are the two best domestic competitions in the world. And especially here with the Dutch team, when I have seven uh, Dutch players involved in county cricket, I mean, it's my job to be watching and knowing how they're going. So 
look, I think I've got a pretty good understanding of the county game. Of course, I'm going to learn things along the way. And that's why it's really important that in our coaching structure, we have some senior heads there who have been around the game for so long in county cricket. So, you know, what I don't know, I'm sure I can ask very quickly and, and I'll find out about it. But again, I think it's also the beauty of me coming from the outside is, mate, I have no preconceived ideas. I'm not going to have already, oh, this is the way we always do it kind of attitude. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to say, no, that doesn't work. I'm sorry. We're going to try this, this, and this. And, um, you know, I'm not saying we're going to throw county cricket on its head by trying to weigh different things because, you know, I don't think you need to break the system. But, mate, there are things I'm going to change. And that's the way I've always been. And that's the hopefully the, the grounding that I've had with 30 years in the, in the professional game. So um, I know I get back to your original point about the members. I hope they do look forward to this season because I think it's going to be pretty exciting. And I'm a person that, mate, I'm going to sit and have a beer with <laughs> as many members as I can throughout the year because, you know, that's my job. If they want to ask me questions, mate, I, I'm always open to chatting. So uh, obviously, I'm not going to drink and drive home from the riverside, but yeah, you know, I'll be standing around. I'll be, I'll be waiting around. I'll ask their opinions because they're all part of what makes Durham so great. Well, thanks for for your open conversation there. Uh, I'd like to to move on to a subject that you've probably talked about almost too much now about what happened to you on April the 16th when you had a a cardiac arrest. Um, when a fit 50-year-old international cricket coach were just you were just in a playground with um, your children. Can you let listeners know what happened? Well, I'm going to tell you the story that I've been told because the facts are I have no recollection of seven days of my life. What I do know is that I had been to New Zealand on tour uh, with the Dutch, I'd just gone home to Perth for a week, which I hadn't been home for, I think it was two and a half years or something because of COVID. Uh, so I, you know, caught up with family and friends, which was, you know, something I was looking forward to forever. I, re- I returned home to the Netherlands. And about two days later, we flew to England to see my wife has, her mother is lives in England and her brother. So, you know, we always catch up with the family. So we went over there. We went to a place called Bewilderwood, which is a very famous, you know, playground area. And from all reports, I was with my daughter on lining up for one of the slides and we were sort of up, you know, on the top of the stairs. And basically I just said to someone, oh, I don't feel that great and lied on the ground. And then I tried to get up and apologise to everyone for causing a scene. Sorry, sorry, sorry. But then literally just laid down on the ground again and luckily for me I put my head on the foot of a three-year-old little girl who was standing in line wanting to go on the slide and that girl her mother had just finished a CPR course and basically she had the courage and the mental strength to see I was in trouble and to give me CPR straight away and she brought me back because she said, well, I was, I wasn't, I was gone. And luckily she did that and kept me going until the ambulances and, um, you know, the paramedics arrived. I think it was about 15 minutes later from all reports. And, you know, they 
put me in a, in a helicopter and flew me um, to hospital where luckily, again, you know, Stoke is reported as one of the great cardiac uh, hospitals throughout England. And, and, you know, they took me there and, again, without being too dramatic and stuff, they say over the course of the next three or four days I pretty much died 15 times or something. Um, my chances of survival, they said, was 7% to my wife, which let me say when, when you're talking of, you know, my life, and what I'm doing now and, you know, still being here, the only one that had the courage was my wife. You know, she went through seven days of absolute hell being told by doctors that this was an end-of-life event or I may need a, you know, a heart transplant. Um, one, of the, one of the cardiologists there who's a wonderful Welsh guy who, you know, my one of my best friends in the world who lives in Las Vegas, Simon Millington, flew straight away to help Leontina and was there. And those two, you know, obviously took over for the, for those seven days. But they were speaking to the, the doctor and he was very jolly. And he said, mate, he's young, he's fit. We're not going to give up. Don't worry about that. We're going to try this. And if that works, brilliant. If that, we're going to try this, this and this. If that doesn't work, we're going to try this. And then in this, and they felt quite, uplifted by all this but then in, in the next breath he said but I have booked him in for a heart transplant and my wife at that time had done the research which meant basically I was going to have 10 years of life and you know which obviously upset her but the Welsh guy doctor just said you know 10 years is better than what we've got now and but then for some reason and again I, I am a bit of a romantic when it comes to this that I, I'm not a quitter I've never quit anything in my life I think the love of my family, for some reason, she, my wife walked in seven days later and I was awake. I was sitting there asking what the hell's going on. I'm, why am I in Bali? I thought in my head I was in Bali. I'd been kidnapped. People had stolen my wallet, my ring, my everything. And I was quite sort of, it, that was my recollection. So the only thing I remember is having this very clear dream that I had been kidnapped and I was in Bali and I even said to my wife, look, can you please get the doctor because I need a, a, a HIV test because I've got all these potholes in my, my arm where they've obviously been injecting me with heroin to keep me in this weird state. But, you know, she, she, after that, she sort of had to calm me down and sort of say, no, 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 wait, relax. You're here. This is what's happened. But, again, she didn't really go into details because she didn't, they didn't want to over sort of awe me with all this information. But, you know, over the course of the next week, she tried to explain that, you know, this is what happened. Again, I hadn't turned my phone on. She had my phone and she didn't want, you know, me to just turn it on because she thought it might be too much for me to bear. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, eventually when, when I did turn my phone on and, you know, saw, the amounts of messages and social media and the the news reports throughout the world, throughout Australia. Man, it was very humbling, to be honest, that someone would even want to talk about me or, you know, they thought it was news. But, you know, obviously, and again, I'm sorry if I've gone on a bit long, but, you know, in a year where we had lost Rod Marsh, we'd lost Shane Warne, I'm not, don't get me wrong, I don't class myself anywhere near those people but I was a cricketer from that age group and then all of a sudden someone else has gone down with a cardiac arrest 
you know, what was going on. And I think that sort of made the whole world kind of, gee, Ryan Campbell's in hospital, blah, blah, blah. He's had a cardiac arrest or this, that and the other. It's what's going on. And, um, yeah, so, you know, the, the amount of messages that I'll, I'll say is it, it still gives me goosebumps and makes me feel very, very privileged to have friends and family around the world. And, yeah, mate, I even got a text from Steve Waugh, who's my absolute idol in, in cricket my whole life, but was always about, you know, he was he captain one game that I played for Australia in. And, you know, for him to text me out of the blue saying, mate, come on, hope you're okay. You know, we're all, we're all, barracking for you and this that and the other so um yeah it was a very surreal seven days of my life and obviously it's taken three or four weeks that I stayed in hospital to sort of get the full impact of what had happened um but here I am now you know still smiling still happy still um you know gracious for for what's happened but more importantly really focused on what's next and so I can leave that behind me and you know, take on the, the next challenge with a lot of vigour, I would have thought. Well, that's the longest answer I've ever had on this podcast, but I didn't want to interrupt. And I, you saved me so many questions. You don't, you don't really need me on this podcast. You, I just let you go, really. But that was, that was. I, I mean, I find it hard to believe that you hear these stories, but you've like got seven days when you just don't remember any, because you were in an, in an induced coma. And um, you mentioned the young lady um who did you cpr without her there presumably you wouldn't have survived no 100 percent. so to becky bassett um who i was lucky enough to meet um you know when i was out of hospital we had uh, lunch with her and, and her daughter and he heard her story of how you know where she, why she was there on that day and how she got into the cpr she got into she did the CPR course because for some crazy reason, she decided to change jobs. And part of the change of jobs, she had to do a first aid course and a CPR course and literally just finished it, which, um, yeah, I'll, I'll be forever grateful. And, you know, since then, my wife and I have gone through a, a first aid course and, and learnt all that sort of stuff as well, which I think is so important for anyone out there. And I think, to be honest, it's one of those things that we should be trying to encourage that teenagers at school start to learn their CPR courses and learn what to do in a situation. If mum or dad go down, you know, how can they get their hands on an AED or, you know, do they use CPR at the time? Things like that. So um, that's one of the things I'll be very vocal on um, is spreading the word, so to speak, you know, in Australia, I, I, um, Kickstarter Heart Day was actually the first day of the World Cup. So I, you know, I got involved down there and, you know, helped out. And I, I don't know if you ever remember or you were a fan of the Wiggles, but I'm actually a, a mate of Greg Page, who was the original Yellow Wiggle, who, of course, had a cardiac arrest on stage while performing. And so he is a massive voice now for AEDs everywhere. And, you know, so we, we, we chat quite often and, and you know, We'll, we'll keep pushing the word and, and hopefully we can help someone else. And you're now like Christian Erickson. You've got a little box inside you, I think. I do. I have, uh, you know, I have an ICD on my chest, which my kids uh, call my insurance policy. Um, of course, when I watch him play for Manchester United and for, um, you know, at the World Cup for Denmark, it does 
you know, fill me full of confidence and hope that, you know, I'll never, ever have any more issues. And, and like I say, my cardiologist was very vocal. He, he actually said to me that I'll never need it or it'll ever get used. But he just didn't want me and my wife leaving the hospital wondering what if, it, could something happen? And like you said, mate, I'm going to give you this as your insurance policy for you and your family that you know that nothing will go wrong. But if it does, you'll get one almighty jolt and you'll be back with us. Um, back with us. How soon then were you back working for the Netherlands? Mate, I reckon, look, it wasn't full-on hands-on stuff, but I was back doing things 42 days after that incident, basically. You know, they, they had, um, we had the West Indies coming, we had England coming, we had Pakistan coming, then we had a World Cup qualifier that we needed to prepare for. And, you know, I knew that Ryan Cook was going to step in um, from, you know, from South Africa and come up and be the interim coach and help out. So I needed to help him as much as I could prepare and, and what we had. And um, so, yeah, mate, I, I was pretty much, the mind was back into it pretty quickly. Um, you know, I started to go to training probably two months later. And, and again, it was just to help out. I, you know, I've thrown as many balls now as I ever have. And um, there, there's nothing really that stops me. It's, um, yeah, it's one of those things. Look, am I going to go run a marathon? <laughs> probably not. But as a, as a guy, you know, I, I think I'm now as fit and healthy as I was before. And obviously, as a coach, you need to be, you know, be able to get around and be quite fit to, you know, get through long days of, of trainings and stuff. So, yeah, I, I think my health now is probably better than it ever was. Well, talking about the World Cup, Netherlands started their campaign on the 16th of October. What are your reflections on the achievements of the Netherlands in reaching the Super 12s and then winning two matches against test-playing nations in Zimbabwe and South Africa? Look, I, I think it was a fantastic achievement for, and I, I hate using sometimes the word associate because, you know, we're, we're obviously a team that we were lucky enough to be in the Super League which gave us a great preparation for the World Cup, being able to play all those games. Again, we didn't win those games, but we were in a position where we actually should have beaten the West Indies twice. And again, we didn't have any of it. Well, I think we had one county player throughout the summer or maybe two, which, you know, obviously was tough as well, not getting them uh, cleared to play. But I just think we were prepared perfectly and ready to go and we were going to make a splash. And look, at the end of the day, we actually didn't, bat very well through the whole tournament. We, we showed glimpses with the bat, but, you know, the, the wickets were pretty tough and uh, I don't think we got it quite right there. But I always, and this is part of the reason why I was so keen on bringing the team to Australia. I mean, our fast bowling group is as good as any going around. And that, and that was the thing that I always believed that on Australian pitches, our fast bowlers were going to do a great job. So... You know, that, that's, that was going to be really significant, to be honest. And, you know, at the end of the day, beating South Africa in the last game, the fact that we had a say on the outcome of the World Cup, I think is a great achievement for Dutch cricket and a great achievement for, for associate cricket. And the big thing, of course, is it gets the Dutch out 
of the qualifiers that would have happened next year during the county season where, you know, with the new format, there's only two teams can come from Europe. And when you have Scotland, you have Ireland. And then you got the Dutch. Then you got up and coming Jersey and Guernsey and Germany are coming. Um, you know, that, that was going to be a horrible qualifying round. And for us to achieve what we did, I think it was fantastic. And again, not just for me to say goodbye with, but more importantly for the players to achieve what they've achieved, knowing now they're going to the World Cup in 2024 and they've got something to aim at. Yeah, looking at the scores, none of the teams really scored massive scores against the Netherlands. Did I think um, India got the most. They got 179. And I know you got easily beaten by Pakistan, but... None of the other teams got big scores against you, did they? No. And, and when you look back at that Indian game, our first 10 overs was probably the best we bowled in the whole tournament. I, I think at the halfway stage, they were one for 68 or something. And, of course, yes, they got away from us in the back end. But, <laughs> mate, when, when you're bowling to some of the like of those players, it's like you know, you're not surprised that that can get away from you. So, look, I, I think even in that, look, Pakistan, and I hate to say it, it's the one play, the one team we really didn't want to play in Perth. And I knew that from the outset that, again, I tried to be very positive around the group about Perth being a wonderful place to bat. But it is if you're used to it. And, mate, just the bounce and carry was just, in all honesty, just too much for our, our blokes to handle. And, um, unfortunately, we, we didn't score. And even then, we, we still bowled pretty well in the second innings. But... To then have the belief to pull ourselves off the canvas, play really well against Zimbabwe, and then play even better against South Africa. And again, South Africa is one of those teams, I hate to say it, because I did feel a bit sorry for them, that the one thing I, I kept saying to my guys when we, when we were just chatting in the background was they always make a mistake at a World Cup. That's the history of South African cricket. And if there's a, a, a just a glimpse that they could take the gas, they will take the gas if there's a pressure. So if we can bat first, make 160, we can defend that. And, you know, when they won the toss and said, oh, we're going to bowl first, I actually was standing next to my assistant, James Hildridge, and said, mate, we're going to win this game. Because they, they just think they're going to come out here with their pace attack. They haven't played Shamsi, who would have – given us so much trouble. They think that their fast bowl is just going to knock us over for fun. They're going to bowl us out for 100, knock them off, be easy. We make 160, we're in this game. And as it turned out, that's what happened. Well, I think we made 158. We bowled extremely well. Ruloff Dandemover took one of those great catches that people will always remember. And the pressure grew and South Africa did what they do best in World Cups and that's make mistakes. And, um, you know, for us, it was just an absolute fairy tale ending. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And just a, a bit of perspective in Dutch cricket. How many grass pitches 
is there and how many full-time professionals have you got? Mate, there's only seven grass pitchers and they're not all in the first division. They're not all in top class. So there's a few in uh, the, the hoof classer, which, you know, so, you know, half our teams would be playing on a mat, basically, which, which makes things hard. And, you know, there's only six contracted players throughout the whole of the Netherlands. So, you know, when you talk about it, we have a squad that, yes, we have six or seven playing county cricket. So when they're available, they obviously, if they get selected, they come back. But then we only have six local players who are fully contracted because that's all we can afford. And, um, yeah, so we're still pretty much semi-professional, let's say, and and that makes life tough. You know, when you look at that squad that was down in Australia, Steph Myberg has a job. Tasia Neramanu, he has a job. Um, you know, the youngsters aren't contracted. Vikram Singh's not contracted. Cherise Ahmed's not contracted. So there's all these youngsters who are still finding their way. And my hope, and it's always been that the drum that I continued to beat for the KNCB was, you know, you've got to have these kids contracted. We've got to make it a, a professional living. If you're going to perform on a world stage, against the best, you know, you, you've got to be a full-time professional. So that that's where the haves and the have-nots, It there's a massive gap there, unfortunately. And, you know, when I look at us and now the Super League no longer exists, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, we'll go back. To, I, I'm assuming they'll go back to the World Cricket. I, I still say we because it's uh, I'm very much a passionate Dutchie because, you know, my kids speak Dutch and we've been here for so long. But, you know... I don't know what's going to happen with associate cricket. I've got this horrible feeling that the world wants all the associates just to play T20, and that's that should be good enough, which, you know, the, the World Cups will get bigger in that. But, mate, the more you take away, I think the less – it's very hard to teach kids how to play the game if they're only playing T20. And, you know, that worries me. That, that, that's one thing that I do worry a lot about in associate cricket. And that will be very sad for the game. I think both for the men's game and the women's game, if if we just concentrate on, dare I say, England seem to want to play uh, teams like India and Australia all the time and not play other teams as well. Yeah, yeah. again, and without being too political, it's unfortunately one of those things that the big three have always got their say. And, um, you know, even little things, for instance, Australia, when they go to play the Ashes next year, mate, they should be playing against Ireland in their warm-up games, not going to play a county team who have no interest of being there. They're only going to play a second team anyway. But by playing a four-day fixture against Ireland, it gets Ireland better. You'll get massive crowds. You'll get, you know, it grows the game. And then at the same time, play against Scotland, play against the Netherlands do that sort of stuff to promote the game here in Europe. And, you know, they're the little things that I think that are definitely my eyes have been open to, like living in the associate world, because, you know, I remember back when I was playing in, in Australia, I, I would never have thought of associate teams. I, I would see one every now and again at, at a World Cup and go, oh, yeah, that, that's great. I didn't know the ins and outs and the runnings of it all, but now that I do, I think we have to beat the drum of trying to grow the game in these associate worlds because the gap between the have and the have not, but even say, let's say the top eight in world cricket in the ODIs and T20s, mate, the gap between numbers nine to 18, 
like I think we're rated 17 in, in T20. Mate, it's literally down to nothing. Anyone can beat anyone on a day. And that's what we saw at the last World Cup. Anyone can beat anyone. So you had Namibia beat Sri Lanka. You had Ireland beating England. You know, you had us beating South Africa. So all these things can happen as long as you're given an opportunity. Yeah, Zimbabwe beat Pakistan as well. We mustn't forget you were a player as well. You were a successful wicketkeeper, opening batsman for Western Australia, two one-day internationals for Australia, and also three T20 internationals for um, Hong Kong. You must be the only Australian to play for uh, Hong Kong. Uh, how do you look back on your own uh, playing career? You, you would you you missed out on keeping wicket for WA a lot of the times because Adam Gilchrist moved to Western Australia. Yeah, when when I look back, in all honesty, I look back and think, gee, I wish I could coach myself now, be the coach that I am with the player that I was, and if those two would have met, I reckon I could have been a lot better player. Um, look, at the end of the day, people can look at my career and make what they want out of it. As, as a guy, I, I guess I look back a bit, I only played twice for Australia, where I probably should be a little bit more positive to that and say, well, I did get the opportunity to play for Australia in its greatest ever time where, where players were so good. I was lucky enough to play in an era where Sheffield Shield cricket was probably better than Test cricket. And, and all of our Australian players would say that very easily, that we were the best, that our competition was so much harder than Test cricket. Um, look, at the end of the day, when Gilly came, I could have sulked. But again, Rod Marsh turned me into an opening batter. And it's something that I'd never done before. But, you know, opening the batting with Michael Hussey for mo- for half, three quarters of my career was a great, you know, a- an opportunity that not many people got. And, you know, we, we won Sheffield Shields. We won one-day titles. Um, I-, I think as a player, I brought an entertainment factor to the to the game. Um, as a keeper, I was, you know, I think I ended up third or fourth in the all-time list for, for West Australian cricket. So I think I did a pretty good job at the end of the day. People will argue whether I invented the ramp or not, which let me tell you, I did. But um, that that's something that you can argue about well, as much as you want. But I reckon as a player, I think... I was, I think, uh, and again, I, I'm so, I, I don't want to sound big-headed here because that's the last thing that I am, but the thing that makes me most proud is the amount of people that would have said, gee, I'm glad I went to the cricket today because Cambo batted. And that makes me, that fills me full of pride, I reckon. Well, you scored 6,000 first-class runs, 11 first-class centuries, and and you're certainly right about that WA side. I, I was looking at the two Sheffield Shield finals, and when you're looking at the batting order, there was Justin Langer, Tom Moody, Damian Martin, Mike Hussey, Adam Gilchrist, Murray Goodwin. I mean, it's like a test side you're playing in. May throw Simon Cadditch into that uh, yes, mix as right, well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it, it was an incredibly strong team, and 
you know, people often say, and like I said, you know, Gilly was the Australian wicketkeeper and never missed a test in 96 matches. He was never injured. Um, but I look at the poor guy behind me for WA, for instance, who didn't play because I played for WA. So he was, you know, at least I had a career in first in first class cricket because I kept someone else out. And then eventually when it was my turn to walk away, Luke Ronke came into that team and obviously did really well. And then eventually went to to New Zealand and played for New Zealand as well. So, mate, I, I think, you know, some of those games when you played against Queensland and you look at them and, you know, you look at the players at the time that didn't get a chance to play Test cricket or play for Australia, Jamie Cox, Dean Hills, um, Martin Love, Jimmy Mutt, these blokes made a 1,000 runs every year and still didn't get a look at. You know, Darren Lehman didn't play a lot for Australia in Test cricket. Greg Blewett only played a little bit, and he was sort of in and out of the team. There was, there was every team had three or four hard case stories, to be honest, and that's what made Australian cricket great. Was was literally that competition, just so competitive, so fierce. If you won a Sheffield Shield during that that time, you knew that you were the best, clearly the best team in world cricket, probably the best domestic team in world cricket. And that's what we prided ourselves on. Well, most of those guys you mentioned there who didn't play much for Australia all did very well playing county cricket in England. Um, some of the most successful batsmen of that that era playing in England. Well, you throw in a guy like that, like Michael Divinito, for instance, who's, you know, well, his numbers in, in county cricket were astronomical. Like, um, there's so many good stories. Um and basically because they loved batting, they loved the game. And then when they went to county cricket, they took that system of building, building and building runs uh, to, to the county game and they literally cashed in on it. You mentioned something I'd written down here and I, I didn't even realise this myself, was the, the ramp which you played in 2002 against Sri Lanka, which people can catch on YouTube video, which... It's 20 years ago, and we think this is a, a recent development. We just think it's Josh Butler playing this shot, but you were playing it in 2002. Well, I can tell you how it came about. It, it there, There's two sort of ways, stories that go around, which I tell. One is an after-dinner uh, speaking to get a bit of a laugh, which is actually how it really started, was the fact that I had sat in so many bowlers' meetings as the wicketkeeper. And it, back in those times, and again, now I am sounding old, but back in those days, in one-day cricket, the simple game plan, everyone had the same thing at the death, was we're going to bring fine leg up, we're going to bowl really full, trying to bowl your Yorker and get hit down the ground. And if you had a slow ball, you might bowl it, but not many people had a really good slow ball at that point. It wasn't really an in vogue thing so to speak so you know everything was going to be full and I just kept sitting there thinking to myself okay so if I know everyone's going to bowl because every team's going to do the same if I can get down low enough I can get it on the full which means I'm going to hit it over that way and fine legs up and I'm going to, if I can do it a couple of times it means they may have to drop fine leg back and bring one of their people up which means I can then go down the ground. So that was the theory behind it all. 
And I always love theories, and that's why I love talking cricket with guys. You know, I love a theory. You don't blow a theory out of the water unless you go through it all and see what could happen. And I just needed the courage to play it in a game. And the, the, the spur for me was we played against Victoria literally a week before that, that Australia A game against Sri Lanka. And I was batting and I was still in towards the back end and, you know, we couldn't win. We are probably, the, the run rate, we had batted poorly and it was through the roof and I was batting with a tail. And Darren Berry was up at the stumps. And Ian Harvey was bowling, who did have a slow ball, but always bowled Yorkers. Darren Berry and I didn't get on that well as two wicket keepers going against each other. So he was sledging the hell out of me. I was sledging the hell out of him. And then I thought to myself, right. I'm going to try this ramp thing, and if I get it right, I'm going to hit Darren Berry right in the face. I'm going to get down, I'm going to get it on the full, and it's going to go right in his mouth, and every first-class cricket around Australia will love me forever because Berry won't be able to talk again. And that was the theory, and <laughs> Ian Harvey came in, he bowled it, I got down, absolutely nailed it over my left ear, just went just missed Darren Berry, went down to the boundary before I swore because I missed him. And he looked at me strange. And then next ball, I did it again. And he said, mate, are you trying to hit me? I said, yes. So stop moving your head. But that was the theory behind it was sound, but I needed a spur to actually play at once. And I thought to myself, geez, I've got something here. And yeah, a week later against Sri Lanka, I got sent in and to try and up the rate. And Mate, I, I knew Zoiza was going to bowl full and I thought, okay, let's go. Put your money where your mouth is, so to speak. And um, that's how it was created in in Australia. And I played it throughout, I guess, I think I even played a couple of times in Shield cricket, but it just became a bit in vogue at the time. And again, everyone can call it the dill scoop and he did it, but I promise you he wasn't playing for Sri Lanka at the time. I think he wasn't there. So... You guys do the math, although I'd like 10% of the million bucks he got from Pepsi for playing it on the TV commercial. That would have been nice. Well, you changed, changed cricket forever there. Uh, you retired in 2006, and I know we, you went into to breakfast radio, but did you then always want to be a coach? No, no, I, I didn't want to be a coach. Um, in all honesty, I, I was so busy with TV, breakfast radio. I was doing Postcards WA, which was a TV travel show. Um, I had business interests. I actually even owned my own uh, sports management company there for a while as well. But um, I, I was very much involved in media and wanted that. Then I'd always done my coaching certificates. So I, I was about to do my level three and stuff because I thought it was important for me that at some point you know at least I've got my coaching certificates and see what it, it comes from it but I had over the few years that had gone and you know I was commentating cricket and doing all that sort of stuff a lot of, quite a few of the WA players kept asking me for advice and can I have a hit with you and this that and the other and that went pretty well and I think word got out that I was not a bad coach and my club team, because I played club cricket a little bit um, because I just felt I could help out occasionally. And they wanted me to coach them as well. And kind of I was taking on too much. And uh, I actually got invited to the ICL, which was the, the league that before the IPL. And Damien 
Martin rang and asked me and said, mate, I'm desperate. I need you to come and play in India. And I, I hadn't played a game of cricket that, by that stage for ages. I was like, mate, no way am I going. He said, mate, how much money? I said, mate, I don't want money. I've, I've got radio. I've got, I'm just too busy. And he said, mate, just give me a figure and tell me and hurry up. So I just said something stupid. And he literally rang me back in five minutes and said, yep, it's a deal. Well, half of it will be in your, your bank. And I thought, Jesus, I'm, I'm back playing cricket again. What's, <laughs> what am I going to do here? And that kind of – but what it did, it really gave me the spark to – I'd missed the game so much. And, again, I, I loved all the stuff that I was doing, but I loved cricket. And I kind of – my retirement, although was, I was busy and stuff, I knew I'd always missed the game. And I probably tried to go the other way of staying away from it so much, but it just drew me back so quickly that I just I fell in love with it again. And um, from there, I got a phone call from a, a, a dear mate of mine in Charlie Burke, who was the national coach of Hong Kong. And he rang me and said, look, mate, the Cal and Cricket Club are looking for a head coach. You'd, and I think I was 40 at the time. He said, mate, you, have, you might have to play a little bit, but it's a great coaching stretcher. It is one of the great clubs in world cricket. And I would also get you involved coaching Hong Kong. I, I want you to be my batting coach for Hong Kong. And I just thought to myself, well, you know what? I'm 40. I was single at the time. I'd been through a divorce and all that, that horrible stuff. But I thought to myself, you know what? Why not? Why not go on a six-month adventure and see what happens? And literally, I fell in love with Hong Kong. I fell in love with my wife, who I was lucky enough to meet there, had a kid in Hong Kong, and just, mate, I was hooked. And, you know, obviously, as a coach, I think I did a pretty good job in Hong Kong, whereas, you know, Kowloon became that we won every competition known to man in, the, in my time there. And I think at one stage I had 14 of the 20 national team, national squad at my club. Um, and then uh, the Dutch came a-calling. Well, thank you for that. I've got one final question, really, on your perspective now on life after your life-changing experience in April. How, how do you wake up each morning now after what happened to you? Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. My wife and I have this conversation quite a lot. It, it's not like... I'm a guy that goes, I've got to live every day as my last and, and, because that's just unrealistic basically. But what I do do is enjoy every little moment, the extra hug or kiss I get from my four-year-old because she wants an extra cuddle with daddy or a beer with a mate where in the past we would say, oh, no, mate, I can't make it. I'm too busy. We try and find a way to say yes to a lot more things. We also, and I'll be honest, I don't deal with dickheads. <laughs> People who literally, we all have them in our lives, but are just there that they're not there for the right reasons and I won't put up with them anymore. I know life's too short to deal with people like that and I'm very clear with that sort of stuff. But the other thing is, obviously my family is number one. And I always thought that was, but I'll be honest, as a professional sportsman and as a professional coach of an elite sporting team, you have to be selfish and you have to be a little bit too selfish. And 
I reckon I sometimes got that balance a little bit wrong, whereas now that will never happen again. It's family first, whatever happens. But the other thing that I do know, I love this game. I love everything about what cricket has given to me and what it brings to a person, the ups, the downs, the, the teammanship, the camaraderie that you 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 get from a guy and 10 other guys sitting in that room after six hours in the dirt. You sit down, you're all exhausted, but you're all exhausted because you're looking for the common goal. I just love it. And that's why I'm so sort of, you know, I guess – People say, oh, you're so enthusiastic about something. It's not that. It's just, man, I just love the game. And I hope that in Durham, part of my environment that I create, that when those players walk away and whenever I walk away or Durham show me the door, everyone sort of walks and, and says the same thing. Well, you know what? That was the greatest time of my life. And if I can do that, then I reckon I've done my job pretty well because, mate, like I say, it's a wonderful game that we play. Well, thank you, uh, Ryan, for joining me this morning, on, on, especially on that note as well. A very happy Christmas to you and all the family and uh, best wishes to Durham. I hope you bring some glory back to the Riverside in 2023 and beyond. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Paddock and the Pavilion. You can download the show on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at The Pad and Pav. Don't forget, if you like the show, please do leave us a rating and review. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.